Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello, hello, this is Movie Oubliette, the globe-galvanizing movie review podcast with me, Dan, refreshed from a long weekend away uh, down here in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, falling victim to Captain COVID in Cambridge, UK. Oh, oh no. Uh, in this podcast, we discussed all things genre film, fantasy, sci-fi and horror because overacting plus vampires equals success. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hello, Conrad. So you have somehow caught the COVID bug like almost immediately after I, <laughs> I have recovered I know. from it. <laughs> Can you catch it via Zencaster? Is that a thing? <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. But you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? I'm I'm feeling better than I was, but I'm still tired all the time. So I'm I'm hoping that goes away soon because <laughs> mm. narcolepsy is not great in terms of achieving things. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I, you have you had completely different symptoms to me. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really have the tiredness kind of linger on. I just had the cough linger on, oh. um, which, uh, yeah, was annoying, irritating. But I heard you also lost your sense of smell and taste. Yeah, I can't taste tea. I mean, can you imagine anything more tragic for a British person? <laughs> <laughs> wow. It tastes like dishwater. It tastes to me like it tastes for Americans. It tastes right, awful. Right, right. So... Yeah I, yeah, I remember listening to a podcaster that caught COVID, couldn't taste anything, but he still liked the the comfort of sipping a hot beverage. So he, he what he used to do was just put hot water into a mug and like a little bit of milk, <laughs> just like a, a dash of milk and just drink that hot water and a little bit of milk because he couldn't taste it anyway. So he was like, well, why waste tea bags? <laughs> No, I've been drinking a lot of herbal teas, a lot of fruity things and minty ah, yes, things yes, and yes, yes. lemony, honey mm, good things. Good for the throat, yes. Good for the throat, yes. But oh, it's not fun, is it? I don't recommend it at all. Dodged it for three years, fell at the final hurdle. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, <laughs> I cannot even imagine how much worse it would be if you weren't vaccinated. Um, because yeah. I mean, I I struggled for you know two days of misery, had two days of misery, but after that, you know, it it got better, and and then within a week or two weeks after that, I was like completely back to you know hundred percent health. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that's me next week, but let's see. Yeah, yes, yes. But meanwhile, you had a weekend away. Yeah, so over a long weekend, um, Easter, so. By the time this episode comes out, a bit of, bit of time ago. Um, yeah, we went away <laughs> to Port Ferry, uh, which is in rural oh. Victoria, down by the beach, the seaside with some friends. Uh, 
Unfortunately, uh, it was pissing down of rain the whole time. It's very cold. <laughs> oh, no. Very cold. So we didn't get to see as many sights as we would have liked to, but um, it was still good to get away from the city. And uh, we saw a little bit of wildlife. We saw some koalas and some oh. emus. Uh, the emus were amazing. They were coming. It was really strange. We went to this wildlife reserve. We went on this soggy walk through the rain, saw nothing, <laughs> came back to the car park, see a koala in the car park, and then emus just wandering around the car park. It's like, why did we leave the car park? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that was, it was good. It was good to get away. But yeah, yeah a lot of things happening at the moment with me. I don't, I don't think I mentioned, but um, our house had, a, had an outage down one side of the house, which included oh. our bedroom, my studio, um, and the laundry. And so I had an extension cord running from the kitchen, two extension cords <laughs> uh, connected together, <laughs> running from the kitchen all the way through the house into my room, um, just so that we could record the podcast. Um, <laughs> so that was fun. Um, also, yeah. oh my computer's on the fritz. Got a new one coming. Uh, next week so brand new system on our next episode so this is going to be the last episode recorded on my old 2012 laptop wow <laughs> it's lasted yeah. a long time though 11 years 2012 11 years not that's bad. pretty good it's not bad it's not bad <laughs> uh, so i'm looking forward to a, a brand spanking new modern computer that uh <laughs> it's probably a lot faster than this one yeah so our next podcast will be blazingly fast. <laughs> yeah, it will sound exactly Something. the same. <laughs> <laughs> so Conrad, any blazing comments in our mailbag today? Uh, yes, we had various people commenting on Eddie Murphy's sci-fi outing. Oh, Eddie Coulter says, I blame the success of Coming to America as to why Eddie Murphy was doing so many movies playing multiple characters. He was oh. trying to catch its box office success again. Right. That's a good point. I'd right. forgotten about that one. I haven't... I don't think I've seen it. No, I don't think I have either. <laughs> yeah, the, they just released a sequel quite recently, I think. Was it, yeah, has it, they has did. it come out? Or, yeah. Very recent. I think it did. I think it was straight to streaming. It's one of those stupid ones where they just put the number two in the middle of the title. Oh, in the middle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Louis Saavedra said, to tell the truth, I couldn't finish it. <laughs> right. Well, didn't someone else say that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can't blame them. Mm, can't blame them. Wicked Person said, back in the day, we'd go and rent fistfuls of VHSs for the weekend. And despite knowing and loving a huge number of actors listed on the box, including Eddie Murphy himself, something about the box art itself dissuaded any of us from ever renting it. And so we never did. Right. Yeah. But then he said, wait, no, I might be thinking of Meteor Man. This was kind of a whole lot of the same thing, but even more so trying to be Total Recall, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. And there was another, uh, there was like another comic book movie with like Shaq in it. Oh no. It came out around the same time. Kind of another superhero movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Bad. Bad <laughs> stuff. And of course we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Ah, uh, yes. Hello, Surge. 
And he said, The Adventures of Pluto Nash is a fascinating failure. It was written as a sci-fi actioner on the promise that Murphy's performance would turn it into a comedy, but he plays it low energy and straight face, so it isn't funny enough to be a comedy or exciting enough to be an action. Mm. Very true. (laughs) Very true. Yeah, everybody pretty much on the same page as us. (laughs) Yes. But thanks for getting in touch. We always love hearing from you. Mm. Always. So, Conrad... What is the film today? What are we going to delve into? Well, let me just lurch on over to the Oubliette and find out. Yes. <laughs> so menacing, Conrad. <laughs> oh, it's a mess in here. Oh, yeah. Someone needs to call the, uh, the cleaner. Yeah. Oh, God. Bottles everywhere. Oh, and now there's a bat. Oh, get away from me. Oh. oh, don't get rabies. I think I can see the film underneath this overturned couch. <laughs> I'm coming back. All right. Oh, God, where am I? Yeah. New York living, Conrad. I know. <laughs> Disgusting. Maid's day off, obviously. Yeah, what do you have today? Today I have the 1988 American black comedy horror film Vampire's Kiss. Directed by Robert Bierman, written by Joseph Minion, and starring Nicolas Cage, (laughs) Maria Conchita Alonso, Jennifer Beals, and Elizabeth Ashley. Ooh, okay. 80s Cage. What happens in this one? (laughs) 80s yuppie literary agent extraordinaire Peter Lowe is struggling to form a meaningful romantic relationship as he divides his time between tormenting his secretary Alva with endless hunts for a misfiled contract, whining to his therapist Dr. Glazer, and frequenting nightclubs in his native New York for one-night stands. His latest conquest, Jackie, is none too impressed when he ditches her at an art gallery after saying he needs a piss. But then he meets the alluring Rachel, who may or may not bite his neck and may or may not turn him into a vampire. Peter's life begins to unravel as he trashes his apartment, takes to sleeping under an overturned couch, assaults Alva, snacks on cockroaches, and stalks women (laughs) at night wearing plastic vampire teeth because his own haven't quite grown in yet. In fact, he still seems to be visible in mirrors to everyone but himself, and he barely smoulders in daylight. Is he really a vampire? Are his frequent fights with the demonic Rachel actually happening? And will every second of Nick Cage's unhinged performance end up as an internet meme? Find out. Oh, yes, on paper, sounds better crazy. <laughs> yes, really does. I think we need someone to help us with this one. <laughs> yes, after the break. Yay. Joining us today is writer, actor, director of film and theatre, and now a daddy in every sense of the word. It's Lars <laughs> Henriks. Hello, sir. Hello, Lars. Hello. Welcome back again. <laughs> ah, so happy to be back. Hi, how are you guys? Very, very well, yes. How are you? I am very good. Uh, a bit stressed out, lots of work right now because we're, we're opening a theatre and cinema thingy here in Hamburg, and uh, that's going to be taking place on the 20th of April 
Well, wow. So there's lots and lots to do, but I'm, I'm very happy to have taken a little break today <laughs> to, watch, yeah. to watch a movie. Mm. We saw fangs and people acting ridiculously. And um, for some reason, we just immediately thought of you. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, that's, that's what people usually do. Yes. And I'm happy about that. Great. So, Vampire's Kiss. Had you seen it before? I had not. Let's start with you, Dan. Is this something you'd come across before? I've definitely come across this movie, but I've never seen it in its entirety. I've seen snippets of scenes, um, mainly from memes. Yeah. Two scenes in particular. Um, very, very sort of infamous. <laughs> Um, but apart from that, no, had no idea going into this movie, had no idea about the plot or anything. I just knew that I was going to have a good time with Nick Cage. How about you, Lars? I hadn't seen it. I uh, only knew the memes. I somehow never had had the urge to watch it. So plot-wise, hmm. um, <laughs> if we can try and figure it out, it's written by Joseph Minion, whose previous screenplay, After Hours, was adapted into a film by, uh, well, directed, I should say, by Martin Scorsese. Mm. So quite the pedigree. The writer says that he got the idea for the movie at a time when he was having a particularly toxic relationship with his girlfriend. Of course. So that's <laughs> the genesis of this project. What did people make of the storyline? I mean, it was interesting. It was delving into sort of mental illness with this character just unraveling. I found it actually very similar to American Psycho. Yeah. Yes. So you've got this character that's completely unlikable, like a complete asshole, top of his game, womanizer, and then he kills someone. Mm. And I did read that Christian Bale did have inspiration from Nick Cage's character in this movie for Patrick Bateman, which is crazy, mm. but yeah, very kind of similar premise, as opposed to other movies where the character is likable and it's more of a sort of a downward spiral of tragedy. Whereas in this movie, he is not a nice person. No. Especially to one character. No. And he isn't to begin with. Like, uh, yes, it's a descent into madness, but from madness, right? So yeah. We start sort of at 10 and we go to different places. <laughs> yeah, 11. <laughs> yeah. He goes to a full cage, pretty much. Yes. I mean, hence the memes. Well, quite, yeah. Is this the first example of like full-on cage meltdown acting? Because his previous film was Moonstruck. It was a serious romantic drama. And I think he was slightly worried, Nick Cage, that he was going to be pigeonholed for doing gentle drama movies. Right. And he yeah. wanted to do something more punk, more rock and roll. That's his excuse for his behavior in this movie. But I think this is the first time that we saw the full cage. Well, yeah, I don't know. I've seen a smattering of his huge oeuvre of movies. <laughs> like he's done too many movies for one person to do. And he keeps doing too many movies. But yeah, I think this might be the earliest I've seen him go full cage. Like I've seen him in, in Piggy, Sue Got Married and Raising Arizona, but they're quite subdued characters right they're not like cornier slash face-off type characters but i don't know i didn't get his character i don't know what the approach was in terms of performance 
because his accent is really strange. I've listened to the parts of the audio commentary that are on YouTube, and there he talks about the accent, and he says he's basically imitating his dad, Okay, which <laughs> sounds and feels kind of hateful. <laughs> But he was saying he was playing a literary agent, so he thought that guy would be pretty pretentious, and he would adopt kind of a transatlantic All right. accent. Interesting. So he was going for that, for the pretentiousness that apparently he felt his father possessed. Yeah. yeah. But it comes goes though like mid-sentence i mean that kind of makes sense because for the character too it would be an affectation right yeah. like the character would pretend to be sophisticated enough to have this accent yeah, yeah. but he isn't <laughs> no but there are some moments where he actually kind of reminds me of donald trump as well how he talks and even his <laughs> mannerisms like kind of talks through his nose at some points and that's very new york isn't it <laughs> oh yes but the thing is that's an odd reference point because mine was another vampire movie it's keanu reeves's attempt to do a british accent in bram stoker's dracula ah, <laughs> halfway yes. between english and surfer dude yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, at least that was sort of consistent. <laughs> Consistently bad. Yeah, this is, it's like a choice. Like he puts it on more for some sentences than others. And then obviously <laughs> his acting in this movie is just a sight. You have to witness Nick Cage in this movie to really believe what you're seeing. It's crazy. He does the audio commentary together with the director and it really comes across as like Nick Cage was this star when they made this movie, like he, he was just after his breakthrough and nobody could really tell him off. And he was behaving like behind the scenes too, apparently in atrocious ways. Wow, okay. Which he seems quite ashamed for now, but the director doesn't seem to really have had any kind of control over him. Right, the whole star power thing, yeah. which we also saw in Pluto Nash. We did, yeah. He had a very difficult relationship with Jennifer Beals, his uh, co-star leading lady in this movie, playing Rachel, the the vampire, possibly. Yeah. Did you too read the hot yogurt story? The hot yogurt story. No. You don't. You don't know the hot yogurt story. I read about it. I'm not sure I believe it. <laughs> no, me neither. But I googled it. I found several sources for it. Right. Because apparently, and I did not make this up. This is on the internet. It's the internet's fault. <laughs> apparently, he complained that he did not find Jennifer Beals. Um, hot enough to get aroused during the sex scenes for whatever reasons he had to actually be horny when he shot those sex scenes that was important to him okay. so he demanded hot yogurt to be poured over his feet during those scenes what <laughs> yeah. because that that makes you horny well everyone's got their thing I can't say it's ever done anything for me. <laughs> to try it, I guess. <laughs> no, I know Jennifer Beals has talked about the spitting scene where she calls the character pathetic and spits in his face. She said to the director that she actually wanted to spit in Nick Cage's face and wow. didn't tell Nick Cage beforehand. Right, 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 right. I noticed in some of the, I think it was actually all the sex scenes with Jennifer Beals that you can clearly see tape over her breast. Yeah. Like, I don't know whether that was intentional yeah. to show it because, I mean, I, obviously actors have different um, levels of how much they want to expose and so sometimes there's tape and 
carefully place socks um, <laughs> over things. But yeah, you can see it. So I don't get it. Like, was, was that intentional for, for us as an audience to see that? Uh, no, I think it's a mistake. See, these days you would have intimacy coordinators and you wouldn't be able to have like um, Nicolas Cage demanding yeah. hot yoga on his feet well, and yeah. and arousal. That just would not be allowed. Everybody would be made to feel very comfortable and it would be very choreographed and clear boundaries would be set. But right. Women had a rough ride of it back then. So Jennifer, who obviously had been launched to stardom through Flashdance sort of four or five years before this, mm. probably wanting to be taken more seriously and not wanting to be exploited in that way too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did she represent? She didn't exist, right? She was a real character because he bumps into her in the nightclub towards the end and she's like, oh, I kind of remember you. Mm. So he has this kind of fantasy about her. So he did meet her and will have sex with her, but becomes this huge vampire fantasy that isn't real, but he thinks it's real and he thinks he's been turned into a vampire by her. But what does she represent? They kind of do keep that ambiguous, though. Like the, mm. the, the question of whether or not she's a vampire. Like in the end, when he yells, look at her teeth, you look at her teeth, um, they never show us her teeth again. Yeah, like she's smiling, but without revealing them. And then also in the scene where she's normal again, she and the, what's his name, Donald, I think, yeah. they smile at each other in sort of a sinister way. So they do leave the door open to maybe she is a vampire and she's just, I don't know, fucking with him because like she's not turning him into a vampire, but she's making him crazy, more like Renfield. Mm, yeah. yeah, it is a bit of a crossover, his performance between Renfield and the Max Schreck Nosferatu vampire, um, both characters, because of course there's the famous cockroach eating scene mm. which uh, apparently Nicolas Cage insisted upon <laughs> the director made him do that twice yeah. to get revenge for his uncooperative <laughs> behavior <laughs> and then used the first take in the movie right <laughs> this was Nick Cage's idea though like he wanted to do it yeah it was yeah, yeah. and he, he said his body was telling him not to do it <laughs> but he did it anyway <laughs> yeah Oh. It's his divine moment in a way. <laughs> Something out of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a real live cockroach. That's uh, pretty gross. Yeah, he did get in trouble with the Humane Association for that one, but he wasn't bought on the whole idea that cockroaches deserve to live. Mm. Like he wanted more animal cruelty. Uh, in the beginning, there's the scene where a bat <laughs> enters his flat. And uh, that's an animatronic, clearly, visibly. Uh -huh. And he wanted that to be a real bat. And he actually uh, told an assistant to go and uh, catch a bat in, in Central Park. <laughs> that okay. didn't work. And then they had to tell him that if the bat bit him, that he might die. And only then would he stop this mission to, to get a real bat. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then later on, he's chasing a pigeon and he's catching it and eating it. And in the in the commentary, um, the director tells him, well, we drugged the pigeon. And he was like, I didn't know that. And the director said, well, what did you think? You can't catch a pigeon. They fly away. Did you think yeah. I'm such a great actor? I can catch a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Going back to Rachel, what I find really interesting about the ambiguity about her is it's set off right from the morning after he's picked her up and taken her home. So it just looks like another one of his routine nights out in New York. He hooks up with somebody, takes them back to his place and whatever, and then they wake up in the morning and he's not interested in them anymore. And he's going to his therapist and complaining about the fact that as soon as he wakes up in the morning, he just wants them gone. Mm. And yet he's really sad because he can't form a meaningful relationship with anybody. He's complaining at the end that he just wanted real love, but he's incapable of it. What's interesting is that the morning after Rachel, he's making coffee and singing. Mm. And so it feels like, is this the one? Is this where he's really going to try? Mm. But then when he gets in the room, she's not there. Mm. Now, it must be apparent to him immediately that she's not there, but he carries on talking and even hands a cup of coffee to the empty side of the bed. And then his hand starts shaking as though he's suppressing some kind of fury or emotional trauma. But what I can't figure out is, can he see her? Does the fantasy start there? I think it does. And and we're seeing it as an audience, like not from his eyes. Because there are other moments where he's seeing or not seeing things, like the mirror scene, where he's like, where am I? <laughs> and he can't see his reflection. But we can clearly see it. There are like more mirrors in that bathroom than there should be. And we can see it. There's so, so many mirrors. <laughs> yeah. That's a lovely scene. It's great. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we're seeing him descend. But then, you know, there's that twist where the therapist was never there the entire time. Or was she? I think she existed just the last session didn't because there is a scene with her without him that he doesn't see or experience uh-huh. when they are on the phone and she hangs up and then she talks to her lover. Ah, yes. I mean, either he made that up too or like for me, it points to her being an actual person. But listening to the audio commentary, it doesn't sound like that's all really decided or thought out in any way. Mm. So right. I guess it's up for anyone to guess. Mm. Interesting. I think what happens with the vampire woman is in the therapy sessions, he talks about having these one-night stands and then kind of tossing the women away, like he wants them gone. And now somebody does that to him, like in reverse. And uh, his fragile ego can't take that. And that may actually be his breaking point. Ah, right. right, You could be right. And then instead of accepting that someone could not want him, he decides that she was clearly a vampire. And now he's a vampire too. So that might be one way to read it. Yeah. So the trajectory he goes on is he sort of performatively becomes part of her world, becomes her Renfield, becomes her vampire, and even to the point where he believes he's going out as a creature of the night, preying upon innocent women and murdering them. I'm not even sure that he murders anybody, shades of American psycho. We do see a newspaper, but it's in a scene where he's staggering around New York City, so I don't know whether that's just his perspective, Mm, because we don't really see it independently, do we? Yeah, I I believe there's a murder. I I believe there is. Yeah, me too. I think he's gone that far that he, he truly thinks... He's a vampire. Yeah. That he's murdering someone with plastic vampire teeth, teeth yeah. which is ludicrous. That. But he takes them out before. He does, yeah, because it doesn't right. work. He puts them back in after he's done. I know. Yeah, that's not going to pierce anything, those cheap plastic teeth. No, he hasn't got enough cash for, for the fiberglass. Yeah, he doesn't have the $19 for them. <laughs> so there's that descent into madness, but there's also the other plot line with Alva mm. and his 
just emotional trauma that he's causing her. Completely unnecessarily as well. So he sets her this thankless task of finding a contract. What I particularly like is the scene where the author who asked for the contract calls him and he demands that Alva come and stand in the room while he takes this call so she can watch him being shouted at by this author and just sort of feel his pain, see what he has to put up with because of her incompetence. Mm. And the author on the other end of the line is absolutely fine with it. It's like, no rush, don't worry about it. It's just a whim. But he pretends that he's being shouted at and that the author is threatening to leave the agency just to make Alva feel bad. Yeah, mm. and even right afterwards, after she was there to witness the thing yeah. and she and he knows that, he goes on to say, did you hear that? He was, he was shouting and he wants to leave the agency. So that may be akin to the vampire thing. Like we, we, we may be seeing him here reacting in a similar way. Reality doesn't go his way, so he makes something up. Mm. He does, yeah. And he torments poor Alva. Purely on the basis that she is, in his own words, the lowest of the low. Yeah. She does take really long to find that contract, though. <laughs> like, weeks. Come on. I mean, Alva. Back in the day, though, lots of paperwork, <laughs> filing, you know, uh, things can be. But there replaced. was one file to go through. Come on. <laughs> How much did they sell to Der Spiegel, which is a German magazine that does not print short stories? <laughs> really? Alva. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's despicable behavior towards her. Like, he chases her into a bathroom at one point. He goes to her home on her, like, she takes a sick day to sort of escape the torment. And he goes to her home and convinces her to go back to work. It's awful. Yeah. And then there's this wonderful boardroom scene in which all the other male bosses in that agency laugh at her complaining about him with him. Yeah. Which I think that was uh, the social commentary delivered right on the surface, but it was nice. It was, yeah. That was the scene where I was most reminded of American Psycho. I was waiting for them to start comparing their business cards. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing is that it highlighted another thing for me. I suddenly realized that we do not see Peter Lowe have a relationship with men, or at least not a meaningful one. Mm. He doesn't have a best friend who he confides in, who he talks to. The film is really just a sequence of him in relationships or shown in different kinds of relationships with women. So his therapist, who is very sort of motherly towards him sometimes, I don't know mm. if that's what he's projecting, but like when he cuts his neck, she's sort of babying him going, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So he has this motherly therapist He has the girlfriend in Jackie who could be genuinely interested in him, but mm. whenever he's put in a situation where he needs to sort of interact with her on a human mature level, he, he runs out of the fire escape. And then you have the relationship with Rachel, the Jennifer Beals character, who, uh, as Lars says, possibly rejects him, therefore causing him to create this vampire fantasy. Mm. And Alva at work, who he just victimizes because she is subordinate to him and he can take out all of his aggression on her. So it's really that you never see him to he doesn't seem to have a best friend you see him in a bar with two guys but he's not really paying attention to them and then yeah, you see yeah, him in yeah. the boardroom where the men all seem to be just as bad as him so it's not really the greatest representation of masculinity in 80s yuppie new york is it mm. the thing with this and american psycho that mainly stuck out to me was how pathetic Nick Cage decided to portray this character. Yeah. Because oftentimes a movie will reproduce what it is trying to criticize. 
And this often leads to people admiring a character that isn't meant to be admired. This happened with Mad Men. You can see all these Mad Men clips on YouTube where people go like, be like Don Draper, and that's kind of not the point of Mad Men. Mm. Or even with stuff like Scarface or even with American Psycho. When we have unlikable protagonists, I think this is often a danger. The most uh, horrible example I can think of is um, in the comparison between American History X and This Is England, hmm. both movies about Nazi skinheads from the perspective of the Nazi skinheads. Now, in This Is England, the main Nazi skin combo is portrayed as a pathetic guy, and that movie is, I think, awesome. And then in American History X, there's Edward Norton, who, like, he's so swaggy, he's so cool, and he goes and he kicks somebody's head, uh, you know, um, to the curb. Yeah. So Nazis found this so cool, in Germany, that they imitated that. Oh, no. Wow. Many, many times. Wow. And they would not watch This Is England and go, oh, I want to be like Combo, because Combo is pathetic. And I think that's, to me, the thing that I liked most about Nicolas Cage's performance in this. He was thoroughly pathetic. He mm. did not seem like a character you wanted to emulate. This movie obviously has these problematic parts about the victimization of women and the female characters. Like, do they really have much of an agency or are they just there to, to be victimized? Blah, blah, blah. At least he doesn't seem cool doing it. And I think that's uh, a thing that in American Psycho is is kind of different. Mm. Yeah, I think Joker is another example of this where, you know, it's supposed to be a despicable descent into madness, particularly spoilers, even though I haven't seen it, the fantasy relationship with the woman that re either rejected him or was never interested in him. And it became a rallying cry for incels. Mm. It's very interesting you raise that point because I've been thinking this myself, that the film in and of itself, the way it was written and possibly even the way it was intended in terms of how it was directed, could have easily fallen into that trap. I think they were completely bought in on this is a representation of the difficulty that men have dealing with romantic relationships in modern day New York because the role of the woman and the man has changed so much, blah, blah. Poor man, isn't it terrible? His descent into madness. And Quite by accident, Nicolas Cage's performance, which is just ridiculous and insane, <laughs> elevates this to masterpiece status because he has, and again, inadvertently, because this is not what he was intending to do as far as I can tell, <laughs> he has made the character ridiculous so it becomes a spoof, yeah, a spoof of the thing that it could have accidentally ended up being. I mean, he himself said in the, in the audio commentary that to him this movie is about loneliness and isolation, which speaks completely to your point, Conrad. But then also, and I think the thing is, he was completely coked up when he made this. <laughs> and he uh, okay. couldn't really see himself clearly. Uh, and he says stuff like, he set himself the challenge to cry saying boo-hoo, but make it not be ridiculous, <laughs> but, but earnest and emotional. And no, that does not work. It's exactly like the thing with the pigeons. What did you think? You're such a great actor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's suddenly magic. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's the coke. But that has the effect of this character being completely pathetic. And that's that's lovely. It is, yes. I enjoyed mm. it a lot. So an accidental masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. Watching this movie, I don't think I've ever laughed so much in a movie. And it's like every scene is hilarious. But did they know this movie was hilarious? when they made this? Was this an intentional black comedy? 
I think it was, but not to this degree. Yeah. Some of it's clearly intended to be comedy. The bathroom, well, both of the bathroom scenes. I mean, I'll mention one of them in the movies, but, you know, just things like him chasing Alva into the bathroom and she's saying to him, I have a gun, I have a gun, I'll use it on you. And this old lady walks out of a stall and just says, (laughs) what the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and she seems to look almost directly at the camera as well. Yeah. So it's just even more hilarious. So some of it does seem wryly humorous. That's, you know, intended in the in the screenplay. But certainly when the author was asked about, did you intend Nicolas Cage's performance? No, absolutely not. Right. This was not what he was expecting. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think this is something that often happens when people make a very weird movie, mm-hmm. just from, I don't know, the bottom of their hearts and don't really think about how it will be perceived then they often afterwards go, well, it's a comedy because, yeah, there's absurdist humor in there. But I think if I'm not mistaken, then in the beginning, they tried to market this, like the marketing department apparently didn't really know what to do with this. They tried to market it as sort of a romantic comedy. Right. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Even now, if you look at uh, the poster for this on Tubi, it's um, Nicolas Cage with like TikTok filter blue eyes. I don't know what that's supposed to communicate, but they were ramping up the romantic angle. I don't think there is one, but that was in the marketing. (laughs) So had they conceived of this as a black horror comedy, then I guess the marketing could have been more successful. I think that came later after it was uh, perceived. Yeah. Yeah. It's also one of those films where everyone is normal, apart from one person. Mm. You've got, you know, Jim Carrey movies are exactly like that, and Will Ferrell movies. You know, you've got one ridiculous character, and everyone else is just normal and think they're crazy yeah so i wasn't sure in this movie whether it was intended to be funny i mean the plastic teeth obviously yeah okay this is a comedy 100 because he's he's walking around like nosferatu with his like shoulders up and like his his, his fingers kind of clawing at the ear he also has this weird face tick that he does where he's like And he kind of like gasps at nothing. It's really strange. Another movie that is like that, like everybody playing completely straight and just one character being expressionistic would be Nosferatu. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. uh, Which is a very naturalistic movie, uh, like as naturalistic as silent movies get. But then there's the expressionistic performance of Max Schreck, which obviously has been on uh, Cage's mind when making this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen Nosferatu. So, like, how does this compare? Like, are his mannerisms exactly the same? No. No. (laughs) But they seem inspired. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like the posture and everything. But, uh, yeah, as as Conrad said, there's some Renfield in there too. It's not exactly Max Schreck. Right. It comes across as somebody who's seen the same sort of 30-second clip that you see in the movie, and that's, that's all they know. He's just doing what he knows in terms of being a vampire, trashing his apartment and making a makeshift coffin out of his designer leather couch. <laughs> yeah, upside down. His couch upside down, <laughs> propped up on some books. It's ridiculous. And running through the streets of New York shouting, I'm a vampire! I'm a <laughs> yeah. vampire! They did that with a long lens. At some point he says to, to homeless people, um, he says, I'm a vampire, kill me, kill me. And those guys were actual homeless people who were just walking past him wow. and didn't know what was going on. And they, they shot that with a long lens. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. 
I, I read also that, that last scene where he's like kind of stumbling through the streets, covered in blood, holding a stake. That was also a long lens as well. So all the people walking by were just hmm. gobsmacked by Nicolas Cage. So there's even Sasha Baron Cohen style pranks in this. Yeah, yes. that's true. <laughs> Classic yeah, yeah. comedy. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody in New York in the 80s batted an eyelid. It was just <laughs> nothing unusual, nothing to see yeah. here. It's still yeah. not. Ride the subway in New York. I, like Every time I, I rode the subway in New York, I get hit by some crazy person. Right. Really? Yeah. Oh, With umbrellas okay. and sticks. I don't know why. I was just sitting there. It happened thrice. Wow. wow. At some other movies I found this movie uh, similar to in terms of like descending into madness uh you've got fight club like the machinist taxi driver even like the shining and and you mentioned joker uh, and the house that jack built oh yeah um, that Lars von trier movie and there's also another movie i thought of um there's a movie called edmund it's from 2005 it's directed by stuart gordon it's got william h macy in it oh. and it's yeah this kind of very reserved guy that just keeps getting misfortune after misfortune sort of befall him. He just doesn't have any luck. And in the end, he does, spoilers here, but he does kill someone. And it's kind of it's very similar to this where it's just like a really pitiful character that, okay, maybe maybe Nick Cage is doing all of this. He's not unlucky as a person. You know, he's not having anything bad happen to him. It's, it's, it's purely his character bringing him to this level of, like, madness. I was also reminded of, of some other movies. Um, have you guys watched Possession by uh, Zulowski? Yes. yes. Sam Neill. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, Isabella Gianni mm. in particular. In this movie, obviously everybody, or at least the two of them, act in a very eccentric way. Mm. But I think this style, this, you know, grayish, depressing city movie um with long lenses and somebody acting erratic. That reminded me a lot of Possession. Mm. And I don't think Possession feels as comedic, it's even not. though it's as absurd. It's, yeah. it's not. It's, it's, but it's purely to do with performance, though. Like, Sam Neill is not Nick Cage in terms of performance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he seems to be more in control of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another movie would be the Suspiria remake from 2018, ah, yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah, again, yeah. I think visually reminds me of this one. And it yes. has uh, Tilda Swinton hamming it up in three different parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was reminded of that by this. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like these grayish 70s style mm, big city movies with mm. someone acting in a weird way. Yeah, another influence I think the writer talks about is he fell in love with cinema through Polanski and he's oh, very okay. much pulling from the tenant and repulsion in terms of person goes crazy in apartment right see and this is so interesting because I was thinking about repulsion out of completely different reasons because we've talked about this character being so very pathetic and then also if you hear the behind the scenes stories Nick Cage sounds like he was this character You know, and that was so weird to me because it felt like he had such an insight in why this type of character is horrible uh -huh. while at the same time behaving this way. And I think Repulsion feels like a movie that has such an insight into female perspectives when victimized. And then it was made by Roman Polanski, who, yeah. you know, yes, yes, <laughs> and everything. <laughs> yeah. So it's so weird. People who are what their movies seemingly criticize um, having this kind of insight and then 
something apparently goes wonky. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They go into it thinking they're doing one thing, but they're actually doing exactly who they are. Yeah, I mean, Stephen King talked about this with uh, The Shining, that he realized only after, uh, years after writing it, that it was about his own problems, struggles with addiction. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a very similar to The Shining as well, with, with a, another, yet another character sort of descending into madness, but also tormenting a woman. Yeah, right. Yeah. Remarkably similar, yeah. And also, uh, Nicolas Cage starts at not quite that much of a 10, but maybe an 8. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's not yeah. at Jack Nicholson levels at the beginning <laughs> of The Shining. Yeah. It's probably why Stephen King objected to the ending of Kubrick's The Shining so much, because he the redemption of that character was so important to him, and that's why it's in the novel, mm-hmm. and, and that, that character is not redeemed at all. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also in the miniseries that he wrote himself. Oh, yes. You know that? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> it's cute. It's cute. It's cute. It's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. All right, it's trivia time. Normally I do it, but, uh, but today, Conrad, what have you got from your therapy sessions uh, about this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just a, probably an odd coincidence, but the title of this movie was also the title of a film within a film in Brian De Palma's Body Double, which was oh, okay. from 1984. Yeah, the main character in that was starring in a movie called Vampire Skins. Right. I'm sure that that wasn't intentional, <laughs> though. <laughs> Uh, the movie cost less than $2 million. Mm. Uh, it yielded about $750,000 at the box oh, office. So it was not a success. Not no, but it did appear in the same summer. They released it in summer. What were they thinking? Anyway, it was up against Romantic Indiana comedy. Jones. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Date movie. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade wow. and Ghostbusters 2 wow. and Star Trek V. So yeah, I mean, one of those sequels was okay, but <clears throat> still. W- which one is Star Trek V? Uh, that's the Shatner one where they they end the, up the talking to God. Ah, okay. No, God, the mm. one with God. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's the it's it's an odd numbered one, so obviously it's crap. <laughs> right, and that's our trivia. That's our trivia. One thing that I found with this movie with how I wasn't sure whether it was a black comedy or not was how serious the tone was in terms of the score. Yes. So the music is dead serious the entire time. Yeah. If you listen to the score, it just sounds like a Hitchcock movie, like Bernard Herman, like very, very intense thriller type music, lots of semitone movement, like some very gothic sounding, I guess, sort of homage to Nosferatu. It's very serious. And so there's there's never any moment in the film where there's funny music. No. Like it's it's played dead serious. It is. I mean, it's quite a naiven score. It's Colin Towns, who we've bumped into before on Rawhead Rex. Mm, yes. Oddly enough. <laughs> Even in the opening title, I thought, wow, this is all over the place because you've got sort of cheesy synth choirs and saxophone and then very sophisticated string writing 
Yeah. And then you get a synthy rock cue with strings that's very cheesy for Peter preparing to go out on the prowl. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's so cheesy. Yeah. So I found it very uneven. I think the, 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 the opening titles did an interesting thing where it was just all these moody shots of New, New York, York yeah. at sunrise. Mm. But it put emphasis on gothic or gothic adjacent buildings yeah. in this hypermodern city which I thought, oh, interesting. You're going to tell a modern vampire story, a modern gothic story set in New York, and you're showing me how all this gothicness is already there in, uh-huh. in New York. And I felt in the opening uh, credits, the soundtrack was doing something to support that. You know, mm. it had this classical, almost gothic sounding soundtrack and then these modern elements. So um, I don't know. I want to think that that's on purpose and I liked it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it was on purpose. Yes. I really enjoyed the score actually I thought I I loved that it was played dead serious because you really questioned like is this supposed to be funny I'm not sure and I I really (laughs) like that I don't like being spoon fed funny or emotions I don't want canned laughter in comedy. So I really enjoyed the music and I and I thought it was very epic like I don't know it was almost like too good for this movie Mm. Yeah, I know some people find the combination of Cage's performance and the tone of the movie, including the score, subtly disturbing as well. It is. That yeah. It sort of makes it even more off kilter. Yeah. Um, did you find the two death scenes incredibly shocking? I was very shocked by it because I didn't expect so the girl that he vampires and kills and then his death scene at the end. I was really taken aback. Uh, yes, by the girl's death scene. His I couldn't take seriously for some reason. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't very happy with the special effects, I think. No. With the last scene? Yeah, both. Also the biting. Have you guys seen Bliss? No. By Joe Begos. Um, interesting director. Uh, Bliss is a vampire movie too. Uh-huh. And in there, they really kind of take the idea seriously of killing somebody by biting them in the neck uh-huh. and how really disgusting that would be. Right. Um, like if it would really happen. And since this movie has a premise that goes, well, how would this play out in real life? For me, it was kind of too clean Too here's a, a mm, bite right, wound right. on the neck and that's that. And in the next scene, he doesn't have any blood on him. And the scene after that, there's some blood and yeah. I don't know. Uh, and, and, and then also his staking. First of all, I wish... Alva would have done that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It feels weird that a man goes and does it. A man, by the way, who refused to help her earlier. Mm. And then we don't see it. Like he holds the stake. Alva's brother does something. Next shot, it's all the way inside. Like even in Hammer's Dracula, there's, there's you know, there's blood yeah. spurting out. And and, and like that, that, that was, what, 20, 30 years earlier? And they had the more visceral effects for the, for the staking. And then this movie that says, well, this is the realistic version, would have to, I don't know, deliver something that has a bit more punch. Mm. Mm. Right, 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 yeah. yeah. I I don't know. I I did find it quite sort of uh, quite artistic in terms of how it was framed at the end as well, with and just kind of the slow dolly back as well. Um, there were some scenes in this movie that were really well sort of composited. Like there's a scene where he's on the settee and there's just like sunlight streaming through the window. It felt like a painting. Like I was just witnessing just like this beautiful painting. Obviously, not every scene's like that. 
No, some of it is quite considered, but yeah, there's a lot of hanging back and looking at people through windows at odd angles. And mm. there's some sort of cheap televisual stuff where it's just sort of slowly zooming in on people while they're talking to each other, which always puts my back up. I hate zooming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Move the goddamn camera. Right. To me, it felt oftentimes like a film crew trying to wrangle a difficult actor and doing stuff that would look Televisual, because then you well, we might not have many more takes right, of this. Right, right. So we just we just um, block it in a way that um, easy the capture that will work yeah. on the first take. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Also, the thing about the long lens shots. I mean, that's what you do in animal documentaries. You know, where you <laughs> don't have second takes. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Nick Cage is an animal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> completely unleashed. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite outrageously overacted parts of the film in a number of blood-sucking categories. Best quote. Okay, I am cheating because I have two. Uh, one of them is uh, towards the end when he goes up the stairs to his apartment and he is imagining a relationship with this fantasy woman, Sharon, uh, who he has <laughs> met 10 minutes ago. And then right before they enter uh, his apartment building, he says, um, Sharon, goddammit, what I just say? So he's, uh, she's, she's entirely made up. <laughs> Um, but still, he's he's having a having a fight with her. I like that for for what it for what, what it encapsulated. Like he's mm, the problem. Mm. And then the yes. other thing I found really funny, and this is also like I'm 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 looking forward to to hearing um, what, what what you guys think were the best quotes. But 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 I was going through the movie and thought there, there's not much um, like wit just in the words. But, but but oftentimes I like his delivery. For example, this is my other favorite quote: is um, that long lens scene when he walks up to the to the homeless people and says, "I'm a vampire, kill me." I like that. I found that very funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Some some of the deliveries are just legendary. Delivery is key. Delivery is key. I mean, how can someone recite the alphabet and make it amazing? <laughs> <laughs> so in the scene with the therapist, and he's complaining about how a file can't be misfiled like it's alphabetical a b c d and then he goes through the entire alphabet it's just brilliant and then at the end he says i never misspelled anything not once not one time and he's like a little petulant little kid it's, <laughs> it's amazing it's just truly amazing indeed yes proof to be meme worthy <laughs> Apparently, he was trying to channel uh, Mick Jagger in the poses. Oh, oh yes. That does make sense. It does, yeah. yeah. I can Doesn't see it. Doesn't come across on first watch. Like no. That. no. <laughs> it just looks like a child, <laughs> which is great. Um, my favorite line actually comes from another character, and it's the bathroom scene where Peter is staring at the mirror saying that he can't see himself. Where am I? Where am I? And uh, an yeah. yeah, unseen colleague in the store behind him says, you're in the goddamn crapolo, and I'm trying to take a dump. <laughs> so either shut up and take the goddamn <laughs> acting lessons for home or go back to the ladies' room. <laughs> Best hair or costume? The plastic teeth. Uh, 
I was going to mention that I am too. taking that. Now, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, it's so good, though. It's so, when he puts it in, it just completely... It's just like, yeah, this is a comedy. This is 100% a comedy. <laughs> and he leaves them there. Uh, yeah. But nobody told Colin Towns because on the score, he's just going full gothic. <laughs> yeah, I oh know. Oh my God, this is terrifying. But that's exactly why it's even funnier because the music is like a completely uh, other tone. It is. Well, slightly disappointingly, I didn't go for the teeth. I went for the hat with a hole in it that Casey oh, Lemons wears, yes. uh, which I could have also put in most 80s because it felt felt very 80s. You know, that whole thing where it's just a brim with the hair coming out of the top, which uh, reminds me of a British duo called Mel and Kim, who made a, a bit of an impression on the pop scene in the 80s. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Famous for those. Yeah. <laughs> 80s fashion. Most 80s, 80s moment. Okay, um, I will have to go back to the suit-up scene before the second night out. We were talking about this before. <laughs> there is a uh, snare drum used in the soundtrack uh, yes. that sounded a lot like Phil Collins. And to me, that said um, 80s in a loud way. Mm. And also everyone in, um, in the club the first night out. Um, yeah. There were some... Some interesting eccentric costumes there. Mm, mm. Oh yeah, 80s for me. I would also <laughs> pick something musical, but it's the band in the club. So you've got someone playing guitar, but it's one of those 80s guitars without the headstock. So one of those futuristic 80s guitars. And there's always <laughs> every 80s band also always has a set of Congo drums. There's always a, <laughs> a set of Congo drums. <laughs> So, <laughs> that was on stage as well. That, so true. <laughs> last time, Dan, you pointed out as as eighties moment um, that, that that eighties movies like always have some sort of uh, saxophone cue at oh, some yeah, point. Oh yeah, yeah, um, Often kind of random. There was one yes. in this too when Alva was getting on the on the subway. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I had to think about that. Love that sax. For me, the most 80s thing in this movie is, I know it's an easy thing to pick technology, but the typewriter in Peter's office, good grief. It appears to be about three feet wide, probably weighs the same as a small family car. Was it a typewriter? Just to type letters? I thought it was a fax machine. Nope. That was a typewriter. That's wow. what. That's the size they were. <laughs> okay. So completely... Electronic t typewriter. And an electronic typewriter, but that's how big they were. Wow, okay, okay. Unbelievable. Favorite scene! My favorite scene is also, um, spoilers, my funniest scene. Um, I like the, the bathroom mirror scene best. I think, think that scene was, was perfection. <laughs> we have this shot, in, and, and in the center of the shot is the mirror um, to, his, to his left. And he is very clearly visible in that mirror. And when he, so when he starts his spiel, um, it's just incredibly funny right away. And then it ends with that other guy delivering that line mm. you quoted, Conrad. Uh, so, so I don't know. That 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 scene to me was the one really pitch perfect scene in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah. where am I? <laughs> oh. My favorite scene was right at the end. It's it's uh, Peter's fantasy final session with his psychiatrist where he reveals that he's looking for real love a mature relationship 
and she fixes him up with her next patient called Sharon. Mm. And you keep intercutting with him, just a complete mess, talking to himself on the street. Yeah, talking to a so wall. none of this is happening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, as you've mentioned, Lars, the, the great thing about it is that this imaginary relationship is on the rocks by the time he's got back to his yes, apartment. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I do. I love the line that Sharon says as well. So she says, "I like poetry." Horseback riding, Vivaldi, yeah. and long weekends in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche moment. Um, I mean, all the vampire cliches are being dealt with in a funny way, but they are all present. The 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 sun, the cross, everything. But I mean, that's that's part of the part of the story. Mm. But still, it was it was like an interaction this movie had with cliche. Um, a negative cliche that I observed was a was. Um, talked about this before, the rape and murder of um, female characters without much else to do but being victimized. That felt mm. very um, 80s horror to me. Um, there was this quite, I don't know, I, I don't know if it, if the rape scene was very necessary. Um, and then the, 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 the way it was dealt with in the aftermath too, as I said, I think it's kind of lame that her brother then, then, then went and killed him. All of that stuff, I think, uh, yeah, is is kind of like exploitation cinema cliches that we don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. Uh, so cliche for me was uh, when a character has to find a, uh, an odd or interesting item like vampire fangs, uh, he has to go to a weird shop that's always owned by a Chinese man. So I'm always I, yes. I, I'm always reminded of like Gremlins, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. Yeah. every time. Right, absolutely. An old mystical Chinese man sells him some plastic vampire teeth. <laughs> Best special effect. Uh, there aren't any, are there? Well, there is one special effect. Nick Cage wanted it out of the movie. He wanted a real bat, but they used an animatronic bat. Um, it was not a very good special effect, in my opinion. But it looked funny, I guess. And it's the only special effect I can really think of. Yeah. Oh, there's, there is one that I I thought was actually quite good. Uh, it's it's when Nick shoots himself with the, the gun, which has just got mm. blanks. That was actually like, yes. wow. Did he do that? Like there's smoke, there's the flash, there's everything. It looks real. Like he can't have, right? Because you would die from, yeah. from yeah, blanks, blanks in the mouth. Yeah, blanks that... That close? No, no way, no way. So you're right. So how did they do that? It's just a prop gun, like a, a cap gun. So and apparently Nick Cage was like really, really upset about it. He wanted to shoot blanks into his mouth. What? Kill And himself? the director pointed out that that would kill him. <laughs> yeah. And that's the reason why he did the boohoo line like that because he was so angry that he channeled his frustration into trying to find a way to shout boohoo in a way that would sound genuine. Right. Favorite sound effect. In the opening credits again, um, when they show the sun as it goes up. Okay, this is cheating because it's part of the soundtrack, but we hear cymbals that sort of um, sounded like the sun is burning ah, someone right. or ah. us, the viewer. I like that. Ooh. I found that yeah. clever. Mm. Yeah. Very cunning. Well, sound sound for me. Uh, so we've mentioned so the boohoo that Nick Cage uh, lets out. <laughs> I didn't even know that was what he was saying because it, it just sounds like <laughs> like he sounds like some sort of bird or baboon or something. I I don't know. <laughs> 
How about you, Conrad? Favorite sound? My favorite sound effect in the movie was the sound of Alva's high heels and Peter's flat shoes hammering down the stairs as Peter chases Alva down the fire escape. Just because it seemed comical to me, because it was just clop 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 flap 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 clop 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 clop. I just thought this is a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, and it goes on for way longer than it should. They go down a lot of flights of stairs. Yeah, floor after floor after floor. I thought this this is intentional. This is funny, isn't it? Surely, yeah. Most funniest moment. I think you've already said it, Lars. Yeah, bathroom mirror scene. I found that to be incredibly funny. Uh, a funny scene for me, uh, just so many, just just so many. Uh, the pigeon chasing, the plastic teeth, <laughs> the jumping on the desk, the ABC reciting scene, his accent. Um, but there's one scene we haven't mentioned, and it is the Nicolas Cage meme. It's the glaring eyes scene where he's like, like this and looking <laughs> upwards and and, and giving um Alva some a lecture about work or something um and it's it's just hilarious it's 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 i don't know why they chose that or why nick cage chose that but it's it's just so funny his eyes just bulge out of his face and he's i guess supposed to look menacing but it looks <laughs> Stupid, and it's uh, it's uh, I was in hysterics, and nobody had the heart to tell him. <laughs> yeah. No, that's our movies. That's our movies. Yes. Hi, this is Duncan Skiles, director of the Clofitch Killer, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's final verdict time. Should 1988's Vampire's Kiss rise from its makeshift city coffin to walk freely among us and be adored by all? Or should a wooden stake be plunged into its dead heart and flung back into the darkness of the oubliette, lost for eternity? Ah. Lars, Vampire's Kiss, what's your final verdict of this movie? Should people watch it? There aren't many people who I would recommend this film to, but if you like Possession by Zulowski, the Suspiria remake from 2018, and other greyish, depressing city movies with expressionistic acting performances, then you might find some value here. All other movies I can think of in this category are way better, though. Vampire's Kiss deals with its topics of sexism and gender dynamics awkwardly, but at times pretty interestingly. I'd say it's worth a watch. Release it so people can see the context of the very old memes. <laughs> and then again, I think this is this is worth watching for the very iconic performance around which I think the whole Nicolas Cage thing, the whole reputation he has is uh, spun. Um, he does many things in here that actors do and have done to win Oscars. For, for example, I'm thinking of uh, DiCaprio and the raw fish. Um, Cage mm. eats a cockroach, but it, it never feels um, like grabbing for the Oscar because, like, don't be ridiculous. I mean, maybe maybe he was, <laughs> but, but, um, uh, but, 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 but yeah, the, 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 the crying, the yelling, the, the eating of uh, disgusting things. He does it all. Um, so that's a sight to behold. And I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why it should be released. Okay. Kind of long, though. Yeah, it feels maybe. long, doesn't it? For my part... I still stick with my theory that this is a masterpiece that that 
was not intended to be one. I think the writer and the director just were intended to make this very straight film about how, you know, how poor men just cannot form relationships with these these terrible women, these evil seductresses that destroy their lives. And then when they finally give them what they want in terms of a relationship, they spit on them and turn them away. And it could have turned into this this terrible sort of incel rallying cry. But because Nicolas Cage is delivering such an insane performance (laughs) that makes his character hilarious and pathetic and totally, as you say, Dan, unlikable, irredeemable, It, it it elevates itself into a satire of of that exactly that phenomenon. So whereas something like Joker remains problematic despite a great central performance, this is just a gem from 1989 that's way ahead of its time. And yes, it's also hilariously funny. So if if you want to see something that's hilariously funny and accidentally quite pointed and speaks to our times then vampire's kiss is is definitely for you mm. Mm. well that's that's uh it's two votes uh, i think at first glance anyone watching this movie would think what the fuck is this like this is a piece <laughs> of trash like who okayed these performances from nick cage but i don't think i have laughed as much in a movie ever like every scene is amazing uh in its absurdity uh yep i loved it it's not for everyone obviously but yeah if you want to see the origins of the nick cage memes and especially that one scene where he recites the alphabet only nick cage could do uh it's yeah it's amazing this movie is is a masterpiece in, in kind of all the wrong reasons, but yeah, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to see the OG Nicolas Cage vampire performance before Renfield, this is your mm. movie. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the only thing left now is to check the patrons' vote. Mm. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Yes, I'd like the patrons' vote, please. Would you like me to sing a song about a bicycle made for two? No, you can keep the singing, just the patrons' vote. Thanks. (laughs) Our patrons have decided to set the film free. Oh. Ooh. Our patrons agree with us? They're saying it's an undiscovered gem, set it free. 100%. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... A gem of of sorts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind. Yeah, Chazilla says, first time watching this film, I love it when you guys find me, quote unquote, new 80s films. <laughs> Definitely worth a watch. A little slow, but a great character study of Nick Cage's flipped out over the top descent into madness. He takes it from an effete narcissist into a batshit crazy vampire wannabe. Jennifer Beals was the embodiment of sexy and can bite my neck anytime. <laughs> Set vampires kiss free to roam the city in search of new viewers. So there you mm. go. Mm. <laughs> okay, we're letting it go. Let me just strap on these bat wings. Fly, my pretty, fly. Goodbye. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. Goodbye. Don't stake yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Lars, it's been amazing watching this absurd movie with fangs with you yet again. Uh, where can our <laughs> listeners follow you, find out what's going on, and what should they be looking out for in future? I can be followed on Instagram and TikTok. 
Uh, on Instagram, it's Lars Henriks OF, Lars Henriks Hoff. And on TikTok, it's just Lars Henriks. Um, I post videos about our work every day. They are in German, though, but, um, but they are there. So come watch them and mm -hmm. write a comment. I've also just, um, like, if people who know German are listening, the ARD Audiothek, that's like the, 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 the big... Um, One of the biggest, I think the biggest uh, station, radio and TV in uh, Germany, just released a podcast series, audio drama series that I have written and directed. It's called Corridore mm. um, and it's horror. Ooh. It's about a guy whose mom has worked for the Institute for Paramedial Phenomena and um, she and all her colleagues have disappeared 10 years ago and he's now looking for them, going through her files, um, reading them, finding out about the spooky stuff she was involved with. So cool. if you if you understand German, we have um, Max Schimmelfennig, one of the leads from Dark, um, is, is, is playing the lead in our thing. Ooh. And uh, we're working on the on the second season because it was it was actually quite a success. Um, oh. If you do not understand oh. any German, then, I don't know, uh, go to Tubi <laughs> or Plex, um, yeah. where you can find my movies with English subtitles, Leon Must Die, Bear Kittens, Performaniacs, or my Cthulhu trilogy, Why Hans Wagner Hates the Starry Sky, Cordelia's Children, Second Commando vs. Cthulhu, or on Plex, newly COVID Metamorphosen, which is Metamorphoses in German. Go watch them and write Letterboxd reviews. I check Letterboxd every day and I am very happy when I find new reviews. Oh, and also, if you are in German and in Germany and you are in the Hamburg area, 20th to 23rd of April is the opening weekend of our uh, theater and, and uh, micro cinema that we are Ooh. opening here in Hamburg. We will uh, be adapting Lovecraft for the stage and other weird fiction and we will show uh -huh. handcrafted cinema um, from all over the world, micro-budget stuff and, and uh, all kinds of fun things. So um, if you are in the Hamburg area, come to our opening weekend and uh, join the fun. Whoa, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. <laughs> Lovecraft yeah. on stage. Amazing. Yeah. It's quite an achievement, actually, building your own theater. Yeah. Oh, we, we, we haven't opened yet, uh, but, but uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work, too. Uh, but it's, it's coming along nicely. Marvelous. And uh -huh. I'm really, uh -huh. really looking forward to the opening weekend. Oh, well, we must have you back at some point to tell us how it went. Yeah. So if you want to follow Movie Oubliette, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere on all our socials. Uh, and you can also email us at movie.oubliette.com at gmail.com and if you want to support the show then head on over to patreon where for as little as a dollar you can get extended portions of the show and nominate films for us to cover in future episodes for five dollars you get the chance to vote on the final verdict like our patrons did today and get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes and for ten dollars you can be an executive producer and get behind the scenes sneak peeks Our executive producers at the moment are Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, and Isaac Sutton. Thanks, guys. Mm, thank you, thank you. Uh, we also have uh, merchandise at Redbubble uh, and a YouTube channel, Movie Oubliette, uh, discussing different franchises and other movies uh, more in depth. Mm, yes. So head on over and check it out. Yes. 
So I guess uh, begs the question, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, interestingly enough, we'll be with the old blood-sucking again. Oh, yes. But this time, courtesy of Second Sight Films, we've got an exclusive copy of their new edition of the 1977 George A. Romero film, Martin. Oh, it's the 70s vampires. Yeah, 1977. Uh, thematically, possibly there's a bit of a crossover with Vampire's Kiss. But yeah, this is a Romero movie that apparently was very difficult to come by. So this new edition is uh, hotly anticipated, I think. We're very lucky mm. to have a copy of it. Yeah, I'm always curious about his non-zombie movies because, he, you know, he's so renowned yeah. for those ones. But he did, you know, dabble in other genre, uh, sort of horror genres too. He did, yeah. So I'm looking forward to this. It'll mm. be fun. Me too. Okay. Well, thanks, Lars, for being with us again. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, listeners. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Yet. I never misfiled anything! Not once! Not one time!